Good morning. Glad to have you in worship this morning, especially if you're a guest with us. If you're a visitor with us today, we want to warmly welcome you and let you know that we're glad that you're with us this morning in worship. We talk about celebrating God and who he is and what he's done in our life, and that's the purpose for our gathering this morning, is to name that truth and to, and to celebrate what it means for us. So uh, we're glad that you're with us this morning to uh, study God's word. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, I would like to encourage you to open to Genesis, the 25th chapter. Uh, after just a couple minutes intro, we'll jump into 25. We're going to be covering basically three chapters here today, so we've got a lot of, a lot of room to cover. Um, there are sermon notes on the inside of the worship guide there. I'd like to direct your attention to those if, uh, if you'd like to follow along. <clears throat> And then, of course, the life group questions are at the bottom there for you. Let's pray together here. Lord God, we, we believe in the power of your holy word to change lives. We believe in the power of your truth to feed us and to equip the church. We know that like you tell us in Hosea, your people starve. They, they are destroyed for lack of knowledge. May that not be us, Lord. We have your word with us. We have your truth in our hands. And so we ask that because of what we do this morning, because of our time together, you would take those words and you would speak to hearts. That your Holy Spirit would, would convict in places where we need conviction and comfort in places where we need comfort. And that we would, as we look into your word, we would continue to see our eyes opened to the truth that you are God, that you are sovereign, that you are making all the events of history and of our lives, if we give them to you, to be about your covenant and your promise and your blessing. And so we want to partake in that and be a part of your plan of redemption, Lord, and to see our hearts and eyes shaped Toward that end today. We ask this in the name of your Son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Going into my seminary years after college, uh, I had really high expectations for myself. I had pretty high expectations because I had expected by now to have two PhDs, uh, at least a book or two under my belt, and, uh, and to be carrying around my Greek New Testament with me for my personal Bible study and for my sermon prep so I wouldn't have to rely on those sissy English versions, you know. I mean, that's kind of how I felt about it. I had these high expectations about, about my education in, in graduate school, and uh, instead... I have a little more than five years of full-time graduate school training, uh, no master's degree quite yet. Uh, I have a few church brochures and church newsletters under my belt and um, an English study Bible that I depend on a lot <laughs> that has notes there so that I don't veer too far from the meaning of the text. Somebody else has, has done a lot of the Greek and the Hebrew uh, nerdy study for me, um, so so reality had a way of changing my expectations. When reality happened, life happened, my expectations met up with that and were challenged by that. Going into marriage, a lot of us experience the same kind of thing. Going into marriage, we have these high expectations, 
And, and that, that's good to have those warm fuzzies of, of expectations about marriage. I expected to have long walks and talks deep into the night with my wife every night and uh, to, to do things like that just while we were, just like when we were dating and to also wake up every morning, morning with her snuggled up close to me in bed. And, and the reality of, of married life now is that I am so tired at the end of the day, I can hardly keep my eyes open and, and I, those long conversations into the night uh, seem rare. And there's this epic struggle uh, every night for who gets the covers, and, and so she doesn't end up really, you know, cuddling me throughout the night, and we don't wake up together, like, in this wonderful embrace. She's over on her end with all of the covers, <laughs> and I'm on my end, uh, freezing cold. <clears throat> Our expectations have a way of being challenged by the reality of life. I know I'm relatively young, but I'm old enough to know that, that what we expect doesn't always happen. In fact, you, you can pretty safely say that, that what we expect almost always seems to happen differently than we expect. And it's not just expectations like, like for our lives and for ourselves and for our vocation, for our marriage and for our family. It's not just expectations about our lives. It's also the expectations that we have in our relationship with God. If we're honest about how we, how we go through life with these expectations, we have certain expectations, even, of the way that God works. You see, we want God to do things in a certain way, using certain kinds of people or methods that fit with our expectations. I think we impose expectations in a way that are about us on our relationship with God. We expect God, for example, to use squeaky clean people to be his leaders. Sometimes he does. But the reality that challenges our expectations is that sometimes, like we'll see today in Genesis, he uses people, like we'll see today, who have lied, who have cheated, who are selfish, who are manipulative. In other words, people who struggle with sin, like all of us. We have certain expectations of God. And it doesn't take long in life to learn that God is going to get His work done in ways and through people that we don't expect. You see, God is not tied to our conventions. He doesn't have to work as we want Him to. He's not under any obligation to meet what we perceive as our needs or wants. This is how one preacher says it. It's on the inside of your sermon notes there. God's grace is not subject to our expectations, much less cultural conventions. God is sovereign. His grace cannot be tamed. In fact, the uninformed heart may well find the exercise of God's grace to be scandalous, even infamous. But to those of faith, it's a mysterious and blessed infamy. There are lots of lessons we can learn in these three chapters in Genesis, but I want us to focus on one today. And this is there in that sermon notes there with those two blanks. The big idea today is that God's scandalous grace happens in unexpected ways and through unexpected people. 
We'll talk about the scandal of grace later on and what we mean by that. But this is where we're headed today, and we'll see this in the scriptures and in the stories of these people who are chosen by God to be a part of his covenant promise, to be a part of the line of redeeming people to himself. There are people that do things that you wouldn't expect. The story of God fulfilling his promise through devious, even conniving people is the story of Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. Now, God's Word doesn't include these details to tell us, of course, to be devious and conniving Christians. God's Word is calling us to broaden our view of how God works. To broaden your view of how God works and those through whom He works. To let some more people into that view, maybe even including yourself. Let's look just at the beginning there of, of, of chapter 25 in verse 1. Just look at the ways in three chapters, how many times in three chapters these people that we know as these patriarchs and these matriarchs of the faith, people like that who fail in ways that we would count as disqualifying them to be vessels of God's work. That's different than we expect. Look at verse 1. In chapter 25, this begins the account of the death of Abraham in verse 1 here. Abraham uh, and his death here in 25, 1 through 11. Right away we see this in verse 1. The first, two, uh, first four words there say, Abraham took another wife. Right off the bat, Abraham is a polygamist. Oops. Not what we expect in the patriarch of of our faith, is it? Her name was Keturah, it says. Apparently she was one of his concubines. We know this from verse 6 where it says, But to the sons, plural, of his concubines, plural, Abraham gave gifts. And while Sarah might have been dead by the time Keturah came along, we don't know either way from the text itself, Abraham had already had children with Hagar, if you'll remember, with Hagar while Sarah was around at the same time. So Abraham is a polygamist. Now, yes, polygamy was a somewhat common practice among the wealthy in the ancient Near East. Uh, Yes, there are examples of it in Scripture. Uh, Yes, Abraham married more than one woman and had had children by more than one woman. But no, its mere presence in Scripture does not condone it. Its mere presence in Scripture or in the life of Abraham or any patriarch does not mean that it is okay with God. In Scripture, polygamy is obviously not God's best. We know this from Genesis 1, 26 to 8, where there is a, a principle of oneness and of unity of purpose for the relationship between a man and a woman. This principle of one, oneness and unity of purpose between one man and one woman begins there at Genesis 1:26, and it goes all the way through Genesis 2, 24 to 25, where it says there, they shall become one flesh, they meaning one man and woman becoming one flesh. In that passage there, in Genesis 1 and 2, it uses a lot of singulars to describe the man and woman's relationship, a helper, 
a wife, one flesh. And Jesus takes that principle of unity and refers to it later on even in Matthew. In Matthew, the 19th chapter, where he says, one woman plus one man equals a marriage that fulfills God's purpose for creation. How else could he say in 19.9, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits divorce? He couldn't say that if polygamy was okay. In other words, if polygamy were an acceptable option, Jesus wouldn't have said remarriage is not okay except for sexual immorality. And Scripture also wouldn't say that a qualification for official leadership in the church is being a a one-woman man. A one-wife man is probably uh, the better translation in 1 Timothy, the third chapter. So, So just because it's there doesn't mean Scripture condones it. So, jump back to 25 here in, in Genesis. 25.1, Abraham, patriarch of the faith, first leader of the people of God, is a polygamist. So, so that doesn't live up to our expectations for the main patriarch of the people of God, does it? <laughs> of course not. But, God uses the circumstances of his life to make him the man who will be the kind of patriarch he wanted him to be. God chose him despite what we expect, to be the father of a new nation of people who would follow God. Because because we don't get to choose who God will use to do his work. Despite Abraham's failure to live up to God's best in marriage, God blesses his offspring nonetheless, just like he had promised. And we're just getting started with the scandal. Verses 12 to 18 here, it speaks of the generations of Ishmael as the heading there. We see this kind of uh, scandal again. If you'll remember, Ishmael was Abraham's son with his concubine, Hagar. Already he's an illegitimate son. God promised back in Genesis 17 that even this illegitimate son of Abraham, even the offspring of Ishmael, would be blessed by God. Ishmael's an illegitimate son, but, but guess what? God blesses him. Would you? Would we? Is that how we work? Look at verse 21. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she, that's Rebekah there, was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. <laughs> but guess what? Ishmael... Isaac's illegitimate brother, had already had 12 sons. And here's Rebekah trying to follow God's will. Do what he asks, finally being pregnant 20 years later with the first son, even though Ishmael is having lots of sons. She knows that Ishmael's line is is not, not the chosen line like Isaac's is. And so it's more frustrating, obviously, than she expected. Verse 22, she's finally pregnant, Rebecca's finally pregnant, and it says this, The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? She verbalizes the challenge of reality and expectations. She verbalizes her frustration with these unmet expectations and says, Why is this happening to me? So, so this, she says, is the blessing of God? And so she prays, verse 23, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, 
and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. It's, it's, it's back, backwards from what they expect. The firstborn is the one who is in charge. And apparently, and apparently their conventions about those expectations weren't necessarily what God wanted to do with how he made his covenant promise happen. Again, expectations are sometimes different and imposed on the way God works. God doesn't have to use our preferences or our cultural conventions to do his work. And for that, we should be truly glad. In fact, the struggle between these two brothers takes shape right out of the womb. Look at verse 25 where it describes this. It says, The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Esau is the same as Edom in Hebrew. It sounds like the word for red, so it describes his his red hair. Verse 26 says, Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Jacob literally means something like he takes by the heel, which was a, a Hebrew way of saying, Cheater. <laughs> Someone who deceives. And so, so Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob are the first three patriarchs of the faith. And Jacob's name means deceiver. Not what we expect in the leader of the people of God. So Esau, in verse 27... The older brother Esau is described as a a skillful hunter, it says. He's a man of the field. While Jacob is described as a quiet man who's dwelling in tents. He's an indoorsy guy. So look at verse 28. It says this, Isaac loved Esau. Isaac the father loved Esau. And don't forget this detail because it's important for later. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. We see more conflict and and, and trouble. This this isn't just sibling rivalry. We see here a contrast between Isaac and Rebekah. There's, in fact, some damage to this unity of purpose in marriage we were talking about earlier. There's damage to that already, as you can tell here, between Isaac and Rebekah. Again, not what we expect. Look at verses 29 through 34 here. This is one of the... one of the important ways that this, this struggle, this conflict between the two brothers plays out. Verse 29 says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was Edom, which sounds like the Hebrew for red as we said. Verse 31, Jacob, now remember his name means he cheats or, or deceiver. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. In other words, uh, he sees sees, uh, an advantage, an opportunity to take advantage of Esau. And Esau said, verse 32, he said, what, are you crazy? No way. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? So Jacob, seizing the opportunity, says, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So here in this example here, Esau, the the older brother, his uh, sort of dismissiveness and his impulsivity, joined with Jacob's deceitfulness and his cunning, 
means that in Esau, in the end, sells his, his, his birthright as the firstborn. He sells it for a bowl of soup. Esau was, was willing to give it away, and Jacob was willing to cheat it away. Scripture is very clear about not telling us which is most important. Is that what you expect of a leader of God's people? Who here would take Jacob in the role of leader of God's people? None of us, of course. Which speaks to the truth that God's grace is entirely different than we expect. Because Jacob becomes the one that God will use to take over for Isaac, Abraham's son, and to continue the line of David as it will eventually be called. So back to Isaac. Back to Isaac who also demonstrates that God's grace works in unexpected ways and through unexpected people. Uh, Scripture here tells us very little about Isaac, basically, other than how he marries Rebekah which we looked at last week, and then in these two chapters, 26 and 7, it tells us a little more. Look at uh, chapter 26, uh, verse 6 here with me. It says that Isaac had just settled, Isaac had just settled in the region of Canaan, in, in Gerar it says, just like God had asked him to in verse 2. Uh, but guess what he does? He pulls the same uh, dumb trick that Abraham had pulled twice before. He lies about his wife, Rebecca, and he says that she's his sister. He's afraid that, that, that those in the area, those in the region, will, will take her in because she is attractive. So Abimelech, the king of the Philistines here, the king of the, the region, sees Isaac, verse 8, he sees Isaac laughing with Rebecca, his wife, it says. This, uh, this sort of implies, uh, implies, the, the kind of intimacy where uh, they are caressing one another and laughing. And so, so Abimelech sees this, and he's tipped off, and he thinks, well, <laughs> that can't be his sister. And so he sees the, the problem here. He sees that Isaac has deceived him. So here's Isaac, son of Abraham, called by God to continue living under the covenant promise of blessing, lying about his wife's identity to those who live in the region. Anyone want to pick him? Is he, is he fit? One of the things we learn clearly in Scripture is that God's plans are not our plans. It's all over the place in these three chapters. It's all over the place that what God is going to do is altogether different than how we expect it to work out, or how we might make it work. And here comes the real doozy in chapter 27. In chapter 27, it's time for Isaac, the great patriarch of the family, old and about to die. It's time for him to bless his sons. And so Isaac, verse 1, chapter 27, it says his, he was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. And so he called Esau, the firstborn, the firstborn son who was supposed to, at least culturally, according to the custom, to receive the blessing. He says this, verse 4, Prepare for me, this is Isaac speaking to Esau, Prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat. 
that my soul may bless you before I die. We continue here in verse 5, where we see Rebekah conspiring with Jacob, the younger one, to steal Isaac's blessing from Esau. It says this, verse 5, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, skip down to verse 8 here, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may pray, prepare for them, from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, he hesitates, not because he's worried about doing something wrong, but because he's worried about getting caught. Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go and bring them to me. So, so Jacob does so, and they get away with it, and Jacob steals the blessing of Isaac from Esau. Esau is, is obviously angry, is upset, and he says this in verse 36 to, to end the account. He says, is he, not li, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. Remember, he sold the stew, or Jacob uh, stole it from him. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Jacob has cheated and lied and stolen, but he will eventually become a respected leader of God's people. And he takers on Jacob. Does he meet your expectations? The truth of Scripture, the witness of what we read in the Word is that God works only in ways that are in keeping with His character and nature and not with our character and nature. I know this isn't a news flash for anybody, at least intellectually, but God works to accomplish His plans and not ours. In fact, as we learn in studying Scripture, His purpose is not to bend to our plans his purpose is to bend us to His plans. That's what growth, that's what sanctification is about. The problem is we know this intellectually, but we still struggle to actually live out of that understanding. Now so far I'm sure that everyone here is you know, internally nodding their heads about the truth of this. Yes, that's true. God isn't interested in, in bending to all our plans. He is interested in shaping us to fit with His plans. Yes, we agree to that intellectually. We claim this, we know this, we believe this, and we shake our heads all along because we know it's true. But then when the reality of sin is a part of the picture and something doesn't compute with our expectations, we don't like it, and we want to reject the idea that God works differently than we expect. 
In fact, God might just work different than we do, or we would, or we want it to work. In fact, it's so bad, we think our standards set the course for God's plans and how we think about the world. And let me, let me prove it to you. We would all say intellectually that it's okay for me to tell you publicly, at least in general terms, that I struggle with sin. You would all say that that's okay. But if I were to stand here and you had a story of my life, like Genesis 25 to 27, then, then I were to tell you how my struggle with sin has played out in my life in practical terms. For most of us, I shouldn't have this job tomorrow. We say it, but to live it is messier and harder. And for most of us, would be called scandalous. Because we believe grace as much as, as much as we can extend grace. If I were to stand here and tell you my practical struggles with sin from my past, for most of you that would disqualify me as a minister of the gospel. Even though, even though you wouldn't be able to back it up from Scripture. Why? Because you and I have expectations that may have nothing whatsoever to do with the gospel. In the stories we read here in Genesis 25 to 7, if they were to be on the resume for any of us applying for a position as anything in the people of God, in the body of Christ, as a, as a teacher, as a minister, as, as a leader of any type, any form or fashion, most of us would say they don't make it past round one. This isn't really a defense of, of Scott or of leaders in the church. I, I feel like Paul that I am the chief of sinners. This isn't a defense of me. This is a defense of God's grace that works in God's ways and in God's timing. And the sad truth is that many who don't know Christ learn about that grace not from the pages of Scripture, but from their relationships with you and me and from those who claim Christ. So let's tell it like it is. When it comes to how the world learns about the grace of God, one of the things that keeps people from the body of Christ most isn't that they can't trust God to be gracious. It's that they cannot trust people to be gracious. We all know that's true. And, and, and while we know, we know they're wrong, It's too easy to walk out these doors and act as if our expectations for others' behavior is the most important thing. The truth is, we know, we know God works through fallible and sinful people, but we don't really want Him to. 
We want him to work through people who look good, who smell nice, and have white teeth. We want him to work through people who don't necessarily meet his expectations, but ours, don't we? And Scripture pulls no punches in making it clear that God's standards are altogether different than ours. You see, God's grace happens in unexpected ways through unexpected people. And the scandal of the gospel is that grace happens in ways that we don't even necessarily want or that we don't expect. What would it look like in our lives and in our families in this church if we allowed God to work as he wants to, as he says? Maybe we would believe that God's work plus the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit would be what changes people. And we would not feel the need to manipulate people to look and act as we expect them to. Maybe, maybe God could use you. Maybe he could use even you to carry out his plan of redeeming grace in the life of someone who desperately needs it. You see, God's grace happens in unexpected ways and through unexpected people. The scandal of the gospel is that grace happens differently than we expect. The scandal of the gospel is that it happens in a way that took everyone by surprise. And I mean everyone. Looking back from where we sit now, it sort of makes sense, but no one expected God to come and die. That's the scandal. Isaiah 53 says it this way, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We didn't expect Jesus. No one expected Jesus to be one of us. Isaiah 53 goes on, but, but in contrast to our assumptions and expectations, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, our sins. We didn't expect God to be one of us. We didn't expect Jesus to come and be one of us and die for us. The scandal is that God works to offer for us and for all who call on His name, not by might nor power or what we think He's supposed to look like, but by the inward power of the Holy Spirit and by weakness and by suffering, and by death to prove His love. Lord God, we, we implore You to forgive us for thinking that our standards set the course for Your plans. We've set selfish standards for our relationships that don't account for grace. We've manipulated one another because we don't really trust you as we should. Forgive us, Lord, for for acting like that and thinking that way. And we thank you, Lord, 
we are forever grateful that we live this side of the cross and we've seen the Lamb slain for our sin. That, that, that we have witnessed the scandal of grace that loves sinners. Give us more of You so that we would love one another with Your unfailing love. The kind of love that redeems people from their sin. Amen.